How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 148. It's been a hell of a week, Zeke. God, it's been a long week, Jake. We watched last night in Soho one week ago. (laughs) (laughs) This might be the longest week between episodes I think I've ever felt. Like, damn. Like, natural week. Right. Obviously not like the seven-week hiatuses. Oh, yeah, of course. The Um, big breaks, the pre-record sections of the show. It's, Which um, we haven't done in a long time, actually. Yeah, look, it's it's been a, it's been a long week, but here we are, <laughs> ready to talk about some we movies and no, some shows. It's exciting, yeah. Actually, yeah, there's a lot of... I usually don't mention shows. I know we're jumping really ahead to the next week in cinemas. Just skipping the whole show, Zeke. I actually did mention a few shows, which I typically avoid, but there were some interesting shows I wanted to mention, but we'll get into that well later. Yes. Into the show. Now, Zeke, mm. we're talking about Fantastic Mr. Fox later yes. on the show. Do you 2009's. have a 2009, of course. Where's Anderson? Do you have a, a cheeky trivia fact for I, me? I do. Oh, I do. oh, good. So this is the third adaption of a Roald Dahl story to be done using animation, and the second to use Ooh. stop motion animation. Jake, do you by chance know Ooh. what the other film is? See, I was going to stop you at at three, but specifically animated. That makes sense. Um. Wait, is this... So, the two that I have to name predate this film. No, the... Can you name the other stop-motion animation Roald Dahl adaptation? Oh, gosh. Um, It's a 1996 film. 1996. And I, I'm happy Roald to say I knew Roald this before checking Dahl. it, but I had okay. to quickly fact-check it. I know they did... This is not definitely not stop-motion. This was well after. I know they did BFG in 2016. I think mm. that was Spielberg. Um, obviously, Charlotte Chocolate Factory's live-action. Both versions 1996 oh god i think i'm blanking it wasn't like the twits or something was it no no i like how i gave you a trivia fact but i've also presented you with a little bit of trivia yeah i know now i have to guess the trivia i don't know it was the 1996 film james and the giant peach oh i wouldn't have got that (laughs) i remember seeing that as like a when i was really young and kind of was uncomfortable by the Stop-motion-esque animation. Oh, of course, yeah. Kind of like when I watched Chicken Run for the first time. Right. Did that freak you out? Uh, yeah. I mean, especially the like the earlier, more darker scenes. Oh, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the fact that they're in an internment camp See, when I, when for like I... <laughs> a good portion of the film. That's a good point, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think of... um. Well, speaking of Roald Dahl, yeah, it's the, um, for me, it's the, the, the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. The boat scene is horrifying absolutely horrifying oh yeah but that's not stop motion at all <laughs> that's very real unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what's your uh, fact for me Jack? oh god well this film of course is very energetic you know there's a lot going on there's a lot of cuts and a lot of shots mm. in fact there are apparently just under 56,000 shots in this film or were made for this film that's I'm still crazy. having a hard time believing it because I did the math now you remove I looked at the Netflix runtime. I removed the opening logos. I removed the end credits. Hmm. There's a little bit of the, the credits roll over a couple of By shots. By shots, do you mean snapshots? Like, because it's stop motion animation. Like, it's 56,000 individual frames. No, that... Hmm. I don't believe it is camera shots. Like, shot types. Maybe. I remember it saying shots when I read it. Because the map would indicate, if you remove those credits, you have 81 minutes left in the film which is about 691 shots per minute, 
<laughs> which sounds yeah, so I, absolutely I, bizarre. Maybe I should look this up again. I believe that when it's saying shots, it's referring to individual uh, frames. So it's just saying how many frames are in the film. Yeah, but shots is in because it's not necessarily 24 frames per second. Well, that's... Oh, yeah. Actually, there is something about that where they did it in 12 frames a second. Like, to 12. actually highlight the stop motion more. Yeah. Well, all right. If we do 12 times 56,000, you're looking at, what, 672... What is that? Seconds? Divided by 60... Divided by 60... It's 186. No, I'm not doing math very well right now. <laughs> let me see if I can... Let me see if I can help you out there, Jake. Well, yeah, that's uh, strange. Because that's definitely what I remember seeing it might have been like no it wouldn't have been sets because that's a lot that's a lot of shots for an 80 minute film oh here we go the movie is composed of almost 56,000 shots that's what it says on IMDB trivia okay so to help you out 56,000 divided by 12 equals 4,600 and something and then you divide that by 60 and you get to get the minutes yes which is oh, 77 minutes. So that's probably the closest. Because um, you said 81 minutes. So math, yeah, yeah. there's probably occasional times in which they didn't do a complete 12 frame. Like they didn't keep to that rule of thumb. I just find it weird that it would that shots means frames because they're such different things. Yeah, look, I, I, I think that might be the case of someone writing a trivia fact and that not using the correct vocabulary. Yeah, maybe. I just find that really weird. But on the on the flip side, six hundred and fifty nine shots. This movie moves very fast, but not that fast. Yes. <laughs> I don't think. Uh, there you go. Especially that's when... my first botched fact. Oh, well, that's okay, Jake. But that's not my fault. <laughs> the big it's question not, it's not to fault. is: uh, Is this on the poster behind me? Well, that's a good question because it very well could be on the eleven hundred films you must watch before you die poster. Now I know the answer is Zeke. Do you reckon it's on the poster or not? I'm going to say yeah. It's not. Wow. It's not on the poster, which I think is BS. This film should a thousand percent be on that poster. Yeah, in terms of his collection, for sure. This this film came at a real real turning point, and, and there's going to be a lot of really interesting conversations. Is, is this a, a children film in, in the second half of the show? Mm, um, yeah. So we'll have to explore that a little bit later. Yeah, but Jake, before now. we get into that, what have you caught in the last week? Caught a lot, Zeke. Quite <laughs> I'm glad one of us has. <laughs> I'll quickly rattle off the rewatches. Okay. Obviously, I'm on my succession. I can't really call it a binge because I'm just watching the episodes as they come out weekly now. It's a successive binge. Exactly. But I decided to rewatch The Big Short and Trial of Chicago 7 because Jeremy um, Strom is in both of them. And okay. I didn't realize it at the time. <laughs> I love the connection there. It's I like, know, because okay, because I started. I can't remember for whatever reason. I started rewatching a scene from the Trial of Chicago Seven. Okay. Oh, you know what? No, I think I. I real. I'm like, oh, he's in this movie. Mm-hmm. Who does he? What? Who does he play? And I watch it, and because he's so unrecognizable, he's got like the huge hair. He's a hippie, as opposed to like the clean cut businessman in Succession. He just looks so different. And of course, I didn't really know who he was a year ago. When that was around, that was wow, it was around a year ago when we first watched Trial. That's crazy. Um, I was blown away. I was like, oh my God, that's Jeremy Strong <laughs> alongside Sasha Baron Cohen. That's amazing. Um, so I rewatched those two films. And I got to say, Trial Sh- Chicago 7 holds up really well. 
I know during the Oscar season we kind of put it on the lower end of the deserving list, best picture wise. I think it was a constant. But if we dive back to our review, it was not mm. a negative review at all. No, it we just both was, loved the film. It was a film that kind of just met the expectation, and then that was it. We kept moving. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think I remember we talked about this as well. It was like once you start pitting films against each other in like a competition sense you start talking about films in a very different way and I get really hyped up in it. You know, I'm always the one sort of pushing like, let's talk about the Oscars and stuff. But I kind of don't like that competition because it's like, well, you can compare it to the other films that season, like Minari and, and Promising Young Woman, Nomadland, and those films like that. And they're, like, they're all different films in a lot of ways. And I just, I don't like talking about them in that competition sense, but I was glad to rewatch and be like, no, this is still great. It's very entertaining. I still love the dialogue. The performances are great. I think I love everything about it. Well, most about it. <laughs> now, Zeke, I want you to tell me what you want to hear first because I watched two A24 films that came out this year and I also watched two Marvel films that came out this year. Lordy. So what do you want me to talk about first? Um, to be honest, I would like to start with the A24. I'd like to okay. cleanse my palate with some fresh, okay. welcoming <laughs> indie cinema for uh, diving into something probably... I, knowing the two that they are, I know them up. Right, of course. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, just by process of elimination. So, um, <laughs> Which yeah, is a lot. There's still like eight properties this year yeah, for MCU films. So. Just uh, hit me up with those A24s. All right. I can totally do that. So, the first one I watched, I finally watched The Green Knight, which is on Prime Video right mm-hmm. now. And um, I knew going in, it's like, okay, the trailer looked really excellent. And it's sort of this medieval... Um, Arthurian sort of setting and, and all of that stuff. I was like, I'm not really like a huge fan of that time period or the lore behind it or anything like that. But, you know, I'm, I'm of course open to all kinds of films. And I knew it was meant to be quite slow. I know a lot of people are like, oh, it's very slow. It doesn't really move. I thought this film was excellent. I thought it was fantastic. Right. Now, it's very different to when I think of like these big epic you know, period, quote-unquote, films, you know, like the Ridley Scott epics, for example, like Gladiator, things like that. Sure. Even you go to films like, you know... Even God. Last Jewel that just came out. Yeah, exactly, which I, I still haven't seen. This might be the best week for me to see it because i got actually a bit of time off. Um, but no, exactly, that's a perfect example right there. When you figure those films, you figure very straight-laced films with, you know, great cinematography, great performances, but they're not very flashy films. Mm. Like, they, they create authentic sets and authentic costumes... But in terms of the editing and the way they're shot, it's quite um, authentic and straightforward. And I found this film to be shockingly artistic in the way it's edited, uh, the way it's shot, the lighting, a lot of those sequences, the sort of blending between what's real and not real, the relationship the camera has with the audience versus the protagonist. I'll, I'll delve into that a little bit more in a minute. But I found all of those things to be surprisingly ethereal and yeah like artistic and and quite experimental in some ways which i was surprised because you're right you think of these epics as very straight-laced films where it's about the authenticity Mm. and sticking to that story now i think the film works really well because like i said i'm not really a huge fan of that time period but it's a very very simple plot and i'll just essentially lay it out it's about gowan who i believe is the cousin of king arthur or the nephew i think he's the nephew of king arthur and essentially in his search for uh, greatness, he wants you know to have greatness and be remembered. He ends up being tricked by the Green Knight into what he calls the Christmas game, where it's essentially this uh, little duel they have where, oh, we, one of us has to cut the other's head off, 
and whoever succeeds has to promise to do it again the following year. And he's eventually tricked because he beheads the Green Knight, who is sort of like this tree bark figure. He's like this big loomy monster who just wakes up, picks the head up and says, see you in a year. So the whole film, you're sort of posed with this knowledge of he has to go on this journey that's essentially a suicide mission. And if he wants to follow through with his honor and his word, he has to go on this journey to essentially die. And the the majority of the movie is the journey through that. And it goes through sort of the five virtues of, of knighthood. And the film is broken up by these like subheading titles that come up on the screen. And each chunk of the film feels a little bit categorized, almost separated. Mm. I think like it totally, chapters in a book? Basically, yeah. yeah. And I actually think it really works for that reason. Because otherwise, and this is where the thing comes in where people are like, oh, it's slow. It doesn't really go anywhere. I'm like, it's weird because I feel like without those subheadings, I would understand where that's coming from. But the film is very clearly telling you, okay, this is this. Now, this section is is this, and this is how it relates to his journey as a character. Uh, because it's quite laid out, I thought it was it moved a lot faster. And the film's only like two hours, ten minutes. Like, it's not that crazy. I mean, you know, I just watched a couple of like two-hour, 40-minute films very recently. It's So it's like, it's not that slow. Um, but, the, the you know, the cinematography and the way the camera moves is, is brilliant. And I love especially... The few shots every now and then they do where there's one way uh, Gowan's hogtied on the in the ground in the middle of the forest and he's been like all this stuff has been stolen and whatnot and the camera does this 360 pan around the forest that initially I thought was uh, disorientation like oh we're being aligned with the character's headspace because as the camera pans around we're losing sense of the direction we're meant to be going mm. but what happens is it actually pans around to a skeleton on the floor and it almost feels like this weird like, looking through the eyepiece of, this is, like, an alternative ending to his journey. And then the camera pans back slowly, and we see him alive, and, and he sets himself free, or he cuts himself free. Um, and then there's another example where he's in this cave, and there's this fox that's been uh, following him. And you can tie the fox and, again, the, vir- the virtues of being a knight and all of that into sort of the, the law and what it all means externally. But when he throws the rock at the fox, like, oh, get out of here the camera tracks the fox behind the rocks. It's like, okay, we're tracking to this other entrance, so we, we anticipate the fox to you know pop its head out on the other end. So the camera is telling us something that we now know. Of, yeah. Oh, we know the fox is going to appear in this part of the screen. But it, the way it tracks, it feels like a POV shot of Gowan, who I should mention is played by Dev Patel. How's his performance? Oh, he's excellent. He's excellent. And I say this as someone who I wasn't a huge fan of the David Copperfield film. I was bored to death. <laughs> watching that film he is excellent in this so I want to point that out but what's interesting is it, even though it feels like a POV shot when we cut back we then see Gowan's uh, like reaction to it another example of the camera disaligning ourselves with the protagonist where the ca- the camera has a, a stronger semiotic relationship to us the audience than to its own protagonist which I thought was really interesting and I probably wrote that in way too much detail on my letterbox review <laughs> but it's out there so i i thought this film did a, a myriad of of wonderful things and i loved how sort of personal it was you have the the, the amazon prime x-ray trivia thing that like comes up uh, if you if you wanted to i think it's a little intrusive but it's still interesting i was able to learn like the opening narration from the director and his wife it was actually their voices mixed to create oh. the narration at the start which i thought was quite clever and then it, it went on about how Gowan's yellow cloak is uh, the pattern on it is actually just the thumbprint of the costume designer's husband. 
Which little details like that, I'm like, it's it's cool to see. It's it's like you said, Zeke. It's you know more of the indie film train, where there's those nice little nice little touches. Yeah. Of like the crew being a family and like their wives and their kids and stuff and getting involved in. Well, it's what makes it that. kind of feel like a like a small community. Isn't mm. it? Yeah. No, I thought that was a great touch. Now the other A24 film I caught was Zola. So this had its preview screening at Luna. I think I mentioned it last week, and it will have its wide release in a couple of days. So it's very exciting. But I gotta say, Zeke. Holy crap, I could not believe how good Zola was. Yes, I'm just reading your review right now. <laughs> my four and a half it's star, it's one, of my, yeah, it's one of my favorite films of the year, honest to God. So for those who don't know, Zola is uh, the pretty much based on a series of tweets. Mate, I'll get the name. I think it's like, a, because the nicknames is Zola. It's like uh, Isaiah King, I think that's her name, mm. who wrote like a series of, I think, 147, 148 tweets about this crazy weekend that she went on in terms of going to Florida with a, a girl she just met who's her new friend, and they, you know, they're kind of doing. Um, I think they work like a like a, a stripper joint, and then they end up doing sex work. and And I won't spoil too much. The whole idea is of this downward spiral of this crazy journey, which you know is very good time esque in that sense of just like, oh look how crazy things get. Mm. Now I wasn't, I I liked Good Time. We did it on the podcast years years ago, a while ago. <laughs> it was like episode nine. I liked it enough, but I wasn't a big fan of the whole, like, oh, look how crazy his life gets. Yeah. Like, I wasn't a huge part of, fan of that part, but I think here it totally works because it's not just a marketing gimmick, the whole it's based on a tweet. It actually really leans into it, the idea that you can hear, like, the sound of the tweet and all of those little phone dings and dons that we're so used to now and sort of kick our, our dopamine mm. head into place. And I, I actually really dug that and leaned into it because you look at something like Pinocchio in 1940 where Jiminy Cricket's reading the storybook of Pinocchio. It's very self-referential. And then, like, you've got Anne Lee's Hulk, where it's it's edited like a comic book. You know, they've got, like, the frames within frames, and, like, we're constantly jumping around. These uh, films that are based on um, other mediums and, like, the very early adaptations of that, they're so self-referential that I kind of had to appreciate that the film did that, but for tweets and social media. Mm. <laughs> Which I was like, you know what? I am I am blown away by how much this is working for me. Like the the almost insanity inducing amount of like dings and, and sounds that are going on um, during the story, and it, it reminded me a bit of you know when a character says something, then you hear like the little tweet the tweet tweet sound. I was gonna say Twitter sound, but it's a tweet. When you hear the tweet, it's almost like in a Telltale game. It's like that character rem- remember you said that, yeah. <laughs> like an admission of guilt almost. So I just. I was so blown away by how much I liked this film. I thought it was so much fun, so crazy. And um, I might still like Shiver Baby more. I think Shiver Baby had more de- like more of a focus in its direction. I think Shiver Baby was like, this film is about this, and the whole thing is geared towards this. Mm-hmm. And Zola has very little in the way of like a coherent theme or character development, which sound like really big like minuses in a review, but... I really not according to your review. I really didn't care. I really didn't care at all. I was like, "Wow, that's shocking." So, yeah, Zola. I was shocked at how much I liked it. It's really good. Now, Zeke, we talked about the A twenty four films. We did. <laughs> Are you ready to talk about the latest MCU films? Yeah, no worries. That I caught. So I'll I'll go them pretty quickly. I imagine we potentially will talk about this when we do. I guess Spider Man. I think that's the only one left. 
Well, the only movie left for yeah, the year. The only one left. Yeah, there's only one left, Zeke. There's only one to go. We've almost made it for the year. Oh, and there's Hawkeye as well on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> two left, Zeke. Only two left to go yep. in November. Um, so I'll start with uh, Shang-Chi, Legend of Ten Rings, mm-hmm. which I watched on Disney+. Plus. Because uh, it's Disney Plus Day. Disney Plus Day. Yeah, that was last Friday, wasn't it? So it was some at some point this week and I watched it. But I first of all I like that they have the IMAX aspect ratio now. Mm-hmm. That's a new thing that I didn't realise is that a lot of their sort of exclusives or like the Marvel films or I think um it's it's not just maybe the Star Wars films as well. Like I think a bunch of a bunch of them are now IMAX aspect ratio. Well, that's pretty handy. That is pretty handy. I mean it's it's still not the best way to do it because you're still streaming it. But I think it's cool that the aspect ratio is there. Um so I just wanted to give a shout out to that. I'll put it this way, and these are actually really good films to compare to each other, because the other one I'm going to talk about, of course, is Eternals, uh, the Chloe Zhao film, which is really interesting on its own. Um, I gave them both three stars. I I liked Eternals more because of the fact that it was trying to be original in in ways. Shang-Chi is such the... It is the MCU formula. It is exactly what you expect it to be in terms of character development, origin story... Um, you know the midpoints and but you know the third act big battle in the sky like it all plays out very predictably exactly how you play uh, expect it to play out I will say because you know I know a lot of people complaining about the diversity in the internals which I think is uh, externals eternals I'm getting in interns <laughs> I'm getting interns mixed up with external um, I know people complained about the diversity in that film which I don't really get I'm like what's what's the problem like there's the cast is like, too diverse. Yeah, like the cast is just too diverse. Which I'm like, well, okay. that's not like a plot point or anything. They're just like, they just hired people. <laughs> they just <laughs> they sound like it, it sounds like a comic book uh, problem, like people that are too obsessed with their comic right. book. But I, from what I understand, and I'm not a huge like Eternals comic fan by any means, but my understanding is that that was the point of Eternals in the first place. Was it was a more like diverse cast of mm. characters. So I was like, it's not even like they're like opposite of whitewashing characters. Like, what, they become the too term? multicultural. Well, like, yeah, it's it's not like they're turning a white character into a black character. My understanding is that they're just making the same characters, okay. and people are upset for whatever reason. I don't get that. Sure, but even speaking to that, and you, you know, you have like your Black Panthers, and now you have you know your Shang Chi's and stuff, where it, the films are primarily. Uh, you know, cast of different minority groups, and you know, obviously, this is an basically an entirely Asian cast in this film. I think that's sort of the best thing Marvel has going for it. Is not even a quality standpoint, just the fact that Marvel, the company, are hiring a crap ton of people, giving them jobs to work on movies. A uh, lot of you know actors and extras that are getting like free week staycations, well not staycations, but vacations in all sorts of countries around the world to shoot one scene that might may or may not be in i think that's great and also you know giving a bit of time and effort into cultures that mainstream audience might not otherwise see do i think minari and the farewell are far better films in terms of the representation of eastern and western cultures clashing absolutely but the fact that this film's going to make as much money as it does and does kind of that as well sure that's great i mean that's the best thing about the marvel sort of situation that's going on right now, even if the films are okay at best at this point. So I thought that was great. Specifically to that point, I want to talk about the one fight scene, which I think the fight scenes are actually really great in this, the choreography and 
sort of the um the parkour element of it the the martial arts and even the knife fights and stuff once it gets to the later half of the film with the cg dragons fighting each other that's a little like okay not as impressive <laughs> from a filmmaking standpoint they just hired cgi guys yeah. to, to do the work um everything before that i thought was really great had the wonder woman effect yeah well yeah exactly it that's exactly it um but even the fight scene in particular they have on this basically this glass skyscraper architecture that's surrounded by the um like bamboo uh scaffolding which is like that's a really clever nod at the clash of like your glass skyscraper but then like the the classic thing you would see in a lot of like karate Mm. films back in the day i thought that was a nice like gel mixture but again at the end of the day i just i couldn't enjoy this film because i was i was kind of just sitting there your eyes are just looking at the screen you're sort of observing it you know it's like this thing one might even say bored <laughs> that's that is a word that i i wouldn't argue against that is for sure no but that's it it's like you have your baffos again i love aquafina she's great but god forbid they cast her in this film to just say lines with a funny inflection mm-hmm. and the audience will laugh i'm sure they did but watching this by myself i'm not laughing i don't care the mandarin's like rant about planet of the apes is like i don't i don't care i don't care like this isn't funny i just i don't know so yeah that's kind of where i sat with with that one but eternals this is the first mcu film that i think focuses more on theme than character which i think is really fascinating mm-hmm. you know you look at shang chi it's about oh it's about shang chi Look at Doctor Strange. Oh, it's about Doctor Strange and his hands. Look at, you know, these other... Like, yeah, other MCU films have, like, wider connections. But I'm telling you, this is the least personable MCU film in the sense that, yeah, the characters are there and they have quips and you're going to like some more than others. Sure. But the way this film comments on this wider idea of, like, destruction and then regrowth and evolution was i was shocked i was like this is fascinatingly deep themes that they're tackling that chloe Zhao's tackling of all people which now makes a little more sense to me that she did this film because she wasn't hand-picked by marvel she put her hand up like i want to make a marvel film and a lot of it was based on the fact that she was you know a huge fan of like manga back when she was younger and i really appreciate the fact that she can go back into her early sort of the early filmmaker younger side of herself to make a film like this because mm-hmm. obviously she's a lot more interested in uh you know socio-economical politics mm-hmm. lately with the writer and with nomadland um or even the short film daughter she did well this is a bit more like godlike the, yeah. this film more than any other mcu film feels like epic like it's about you know this spirituality and, and religion and and like gods feel like like actual gods mm-hmm. not like iron man oh hey man he's hard to kill that iron man <laughs> the real question is jake what was the first ever intimate scene in marvel mcu f- history how did that go oh it was like 30 seconds of two characters making out i don't know why the internet explodes it's like they've never seen a sex scene before in a film <laughs> <laughs> oh she took her shirt off i could see her shoulders oh no Shut up, honestly. I'm making a big deal out of this bloody thing, honestly. There was that prominent... There were there were two guys who kissed. There was a prominent scene of that. They didn't, like, hide it, like in Star Wars. Oh, but they did. Did you not hear? Oh, did, did they cut it? They cut it out of, like, four different regions. Ah, oh, that's annoying. 
Yeah, at least this one, it was more prominent. Like, it was actually, like, two actual characters okay. who kiss, and it's like, that's the shot. It's not like people are celebrating in front of them as they're kissing. Like, they're trying to block out the shot. The funniest <laughs> things. So I'll give them credit yeah, for yeah, that. Yeah, no, it was, least. like, in, like, Palestine and, like... Okay. There was, like, four or five different countries that, like, cut it out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's tough, because, like, that's more commentary on those on those countries at the end of the day. It is, but the it's also... Is, it is, is the a... film never plays. So it's yeah, like... It's but com- maybe the film never plays. That, that would be taking a an ethical stance. Though. Yeah. The, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't think it's a huge... Like, it's nice that it's in there, but it's also like... Yeah, but what, what I'm saying is it comes back to it's like, if you want, like... This is where we come back to that passive progressivism yeah. that we've talked about with Disney. Well, that, that's, I think, that, is a, that is a case in point example. Yeah. While I'm at that stage, was like, I don't expect Disney to lose billions of dollars on a social issue that they have no... Frank, I'm going to say they have no reason to be concerned with. Yeah, but it's also an issue that they... But then they make themselves concerned with it because of the notions, like the capitalistic notions behind it. Yeah. By putting that in there to like to benefit to Western audiences, but then to obscure it shows that their stance is solely based on what's financially best for them. Not actually well, yeah. what, but we you, knew that. Then, <laughs> yeah, no, this then it's proving that the art and the social issues take second and third place over yeah. money. Well, that's it. I mean, at the end of the day, you got to go to A24 if you want your, <laughs> if you I want your artistry. It. Exactly. So I, so I asked for it first. Yeah. No, that's it. I like it. But yeah, I, w- I would say, yeah, The Eternals is the most ambitious film that they've ever done. And I'm including Infinity War and Endgame because those are ambitious for the size of their cast and the, the objective of wrapping up an 11-year-old story. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is very ambitious. And a lot of people flock to see it, including us. Um, I never ended up seeing it twice, actually. I just realized that. Neither. I, was meant to I still watch haven't it seen it since we saw it. Oh, well, okay. Well, I've definitely rewatched it since it came to DVD, but... Um, I feel like this just feels the ambition comes from all sorts of different places, like thematically speaking. I think it's really cool. That said, the film is still two hours and 40 minutes. There's still a lot of sort of hit or miss jokes based around Baphos and, and you know, you got your cameos at the end there. I will say the cinematography is great. There's a lot of great shots that authentically reminded me of like 2001. Just some great like wide shots of like nothingness in space but making it beautiful the end battle sure the cg but it's on like a clear beach you can actually see the action Mm -hmm. it's actually kind of on the ground which is somewhat better than dragons that aren't characters fighting (laughs) or venom or two venoms fighting each other i haven't even seen the new one i'm so excited man i'm I'm talking about the first venom man the the bloody (laughs) the goo remember the two goos fighting each other i didn't i didn't ever see venom oh oh, oh, you gotta get on it mate i got scared by your scathing review oh that's funny plus i didn't care for it no you have no reason to care it's venom (laughs) venom (laughs) i like that dude you saw it 15 times oh that guy's my hero (laughs) the last thing i'll say before i move on is I, I Like I said, I didn't think it was excellent. I mm-hmm. thought it was bold and interesting because of the thematic relevance. I was surprised at how satisfied I was by the, the sort of the questions going in of, well, why didn't they help with Thanos? Where have they been for 6,000 years? Like, why isn't... I was, I was quite surprised. They do the whole thing where a character just flat out asks that question and you sort of roll your eyes like, man, this is cheap. 
But I will say the effort the film goes to to tie the plot around the fact that they can't intervene with things and that there are certain characters that are having like complete crises over the fact that they have the ability to help people through wars and through conflicts and just are bound to not to. They tied it so well into the into the plot that I thought I really liked the way they did that. Mm. Um, so, that's, that's but will they feature in future movies? I think so. I mean, that was... I mean, the end credit scene sort of gave me that vibe, but they're expanding the character roster. And um, I will say because, I mean, if you cared, you would have seen it by now. That's all I'm going to say. Sure. But Mahershala Ali's voice is in the last, in the post credit scene. So it was like, there's your, your Blade tie in, for example. So I don't know if that means the Eternals are in Blade, but it's like that's their hint of, of going forward, I guess. Cool. But, um, yeah, they're both okay. <laughs> That's my takeaway from those. From they're the okay. Well, dramas. Well, thank you for sharing, Jake. No, it's all good. It what? was a big week. Yeah, it was. Uh, do you have anything you'd like to add in the career section of the show? Before? Um, I not necessarily. Still got to edit that video. <laughs> no dramas. Well, it is time for us to move into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching this week on the show, Zeke? We're watching Fantastic Mr. Fox. Who am I, Kylie? Why a fox? Why not a, a horse or a beetle or a bald eagle? I'm saying this more as, like, existentialism, you know? I don't know what you're talking about, but it sounds illegal. Wes Anderson creates a triumph in animated storytelling. Honey, I'm seven non-fox years old now. My father died at seven and a half. I don't want to live in a hole anymore. And I'm going to do something about it. Don't buy this tree, Foxy. This is Boggus, Bunce, and Bean, three of the meanest, nastiest, ugliest farmers in this valley. You're moving into the most dangerous neighborhood for someone of your type of species. Your comments are valuable, but I'm going to ignore your advice. The cuss you are. Are you cussing with me? No, you cussing with me. Don't cuss and point me. You're going to cuss with somebody you're not going to... Just buy the tree. Okay. Mr. Fox, a family man, goes back to his ways of stealing, unable to resist his animalist instincts. However... He finds himself trapped when three farmers decide to kill him and his kind. Ooh, that sounds dark, Zeke. It does sound dark. What a, what a dark movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is obviously uh, from director Wes Anderson, our third Wes Anderson film on yeah. the show. Yeah, wow. That's got to be one of the uh, most covered directors on the show. Yeah, well, it's... Uh, we did two uh, Tarantino. We've done three Sofia Coppola oh, films. Three. I think so. Have we done three? No, I think two. Did Lost in three. Translation get an episode yet? No, no, we have not done so Lost we've done in two. Translation. Sorry. Yeah, no, good call. This is definitely up there, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, interesting. And of course, I think the Kubrick's first animated had film. two. Yeah, 2001 and the Shining. The Shining. Yeah, we've got to do Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> and Clockwork Orange. <laughs> yes. Oh, God, yes. So. Yes, we definitely got to do that one. But he would definitely be up there, though. Yeah, um, and th- this is Wes Anderson's first animated film that we've covered. We haven't done. Yeah, obviously, yet. prior to this, he had um, sporadic examples of stop motion animation in some of the films that preceded this one. Mm. Um, there was yeah. a little bit in Steve Zizou, and um, I think there's a little bit in Steve Zizou, and I want to say Moonrise Kingdom, but that came after this film. So yeah, I think that was 2012. He really kind of homogenized them post this film. But there were uh, Steve Zizou was the first example he used stop motion animation, to my yeah. knowledge. Well, you, like oh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but like you can just watching this, you can tell. Like, okay, there is clearly an authentic love 
for stop motion animation here in terms of his his uh, history and passion for yes that, especially following this film you know you look at grand budapest moonrise kingdom and isle of dogs all of them are either f- completely animation or feature quite significant elements of animation mm. so and i assume the film that comes out later this yeah, uh, month french dispatch will feature in the same conversation yeah, it's funny because we saw the trailer for that recently in the cinema, and um, that that was us, yeah. Mm-hmm. Was that? No? I would assume that came in your screenings last week. It must have. It was all the screening, maybe. Maybe it wasn't. Oh in the... no, you're right. I think it was my Zola screening. It wasn't in. No, the... you're totally right. It yeah. was the Zola screening. Yeah. Um, which stylistically, that film looks all over the place, which I kind of am excited for, in that way. So there probably is some animation in there somewhere. I would assume so. But yeah, Sazik. Mm. We've both seen this film before. Mm. Neither of us are, are virgins to the fox. Yeah, this is my first time <laughs> since the film came out, though. I saw wow, this, okay. I That's saw this right. film in cinemas. You did say that last week, yeah. I saw this film for the first time. I checked. It was our Joker episode mm. when I first saw this film. And, and it's, it's yeah. an interesting um, film because obviously seeing it as a 12-year-old and now seeing it as a nearly 24-year-old, very different um, takeaways, I imagine. Huge take, yeah. Hugely different. Um, yeah. To know that when this film came out, in the same week, Spike Jones is Where the Wild Things Are came out in cinemas. So Right, okay. Um, That's an interesting comparison, yeah. Uh, both films that obviously are based off children's books, that one being Roll, uh, that you know, this one being Roald Dahl, and I'm not yeah. sure who does the word Where the Wild Things Are. It's probably a really famous children's author, but I don't know it. Um and both of them having kind of adult-esque tones to them, or at least undertones. Yeah, and I think it's funny you mention it, because, yeah, Where the Wild Things Are... It was around the same time I saw that film for the first time, two a couple of years ago, and I didn't like it as much. I definitely thought the... Um, it was more jarring, sort of the tonal misdirect, almost, of, like, a children's front cover, but the inside of the book is a bit more sinister. And I think this film, Fantastic Mr. Fox, I think it absolutely nails sort of the tone and aesthetic of what is ostensibly a children's story, mm. but has a lot of elements that are not really children's elements. It treats the audience very respectively, I think. I think it ways. comes back to, and obviously this is going to be a pretty continuous conversation as we, although this is not a director's corner, but talking about you know this being our third Anderson on the show and as someone who has seen every single one of his films, it, there's definitely a consistency in his tone where he takes the perfect balance of adults acting like children and children acting like mm. adults. Um, yeah, that's actually true. That's and that's a consistent follow-through with literally next to, all, I would say, all of his uh, films to an extent. Um, definitely post-Bottle um, Rocket, which is the only one that might stray a little, but we always talk about how that's the one that's obviously sort of definitely the prototype mm. Uh, Anderson film, but starting with Rushmore, moving into especially like Royal Tenenbaums and stuff like that, where we clearly see adults acting like children, um, and that consistently. Ha- and then Moonrise Kingdom, the film that followed Fantastic Mr. Fox, really nailed that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and well, the way they even treat the, the the relationship between two kids very seriously, and and like an authentic relationship. Yeah, and the, and this film, I I think. You know, obviously watching it now, isn't it? I just love it. I, I love the style of animation. I think the story is really great. Um, is it my favourite Wes Anderson film? 
Oh, I don't think it's it's going to require. I, I like think, that you're struggling though to answer that question. Yeah, it's a, it's a toughie because there's so much to like about this film, um, and particularly the story because um, you can give props to obviously the commitment to stop motion animation, but it's not what makes um, because he's not the first to do prolifically good stop motion animation full feature length films. I right. mean. Um, Wallace and Gromit had been doing that stuff, that level of quality for decades beforehand. You know the guys who make, you know those guys. So, it the 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 fact is, what I like about this film is is what I like about it is it's got um quite a few car um cast members that aren't regular fixtures in Anderson films, particularly taking um primary roles. I mean, mm. this is the only time George Clooney's in a, to my knowledge, is. Off the top of my head, he's yeah, only... definitely, definitely a mayor. I think you're right. I'll just double check there. He might have done some cameos, but yeah, like George Clooney, he's more of a uh, bloody what's it called, the Coen Brothers, yeah, type staple. But even just flicking through this, yeah, he's not really in pretty much anything else they've done actually. Um, and even Meryl Streep to have um her as the uh, as the wife character. I mean, she is not a regular fixture of of Wes Anderson films either. Mm. Um, not like a Tilda Swinton is. Um, yeah, or an Owen Wilson, for example. Yeah, or Bill thing. Murray, yeah. which, you know, and they're still in there, obviously. Um, you know, like, the, he does still keep most, you know, he does once again keep consistency with, like yeah. like I said, like, uh, there is a Owen Wilson cameo in this one. You know, Jason Schwartzman is, is Ash, so yeah. still a, an intrinsic character. Um, so the, it's, it's really interesting. Um I have to ask you, do you think this film is a children's film? In a lot of ways, no. And the comparison I want to make here, I haven't rewatched this film when I was an adult, but I have a feeling I would have reacted to it the same way I would have reacted to this film. I'm getting all my pronouns mixed up right now. Uh, Rango. The animated film Rango. Another film I saw only when it came out. Right. Well, see, that's the thing. I watched that as well. I was like, you know, younger, I guess... Maybe what ten, twelve. 14, I think that film maybe. came out the same year or next to the same year. Okay, this yeah, probably. I really can't remember to be honest, but I remember that being an animated film that I just didn't. Twenty eleven. Twenty eleven. Okay, so a couple of years. So I would have been at least fourteen. I didn't get that film at all, and I imagine I would a thousand percent get it now, watching it. And I feel like Fantastic Mr. Fox would have been the same way. Isn't that? It's. It, it on the surface, yes, it's a, it's a children's film. It's animated, and the characters are all really you know fun and, and energetic and, and kind of kooky. And of course, it's based on a Roald Dahl book, which I'll quickly mention is funny because the opening of the film is the Roald Dahl book, which is exactly what I was talking about with the Zola self-referential stuff. But there was a mm. neat little touch to make that point. But I think all the staples have been a children's film are there, but part of me thinks it's it makes more sense to adults in a lot of ways because a lot of the themes are darker than you would expect them to be. Yeah, I I think I want to kind of throw this in the works. Um, You know, you take the Pixar formula where Mm. all of those films are most definitely children's films, but adults can get alternative readings out of them. I think this is not one of those films because I remember seeing this film as a 12-year-old and enjoying it but not really understanding it. That's I exactly think. And, it, yeah. And by not understanding it, I mean, it's not like when I watched Toy Story as a as an eight or a nine-year-old and when I understand the, the plot very clearly, yeah. you know, 
it's it's a very basic plot. He's the new, you know, Woody's the favorite toy. New toy comes along. Yeah. He gets jealous. Like, and they, like, the, the point for point is something so, uh, the, the Pixar formula is a child can understand it, but then a parent can take a different reading out of it. Mm. Or, or there are little, little bait throws. So the parent goes, ah, I find that funny. My kid won't really understand that, but I'll understand that. Yeah. yeah. Especially when you go into the later Toy Story films, you know, it definitely flips itself a little bit. I think it's comparable because I would argue Fantastic Mr. Fox is a, a, a similarly simple plot, but the way that it's like portrayed throughout the film, the speed that it goes at, the kind of dialogue that they're using, like mm. the witticisms of it all, I think those are the things that are more geared towards adults. I think Toy Story is equally simple in the plotting, but in terms of the dialogue and the presentation and, and how things are, the types of jokes they make, it's easier for kids to buy into the aesthetic of it. I think that's the key mm. difference between the two. I think, I, think I, I just don't see this film, and it kind of actually speaks volumes because if you look at its um, box office return, it wasn't a, a great return. I think it made just a little over $40 million, which is yeah. not um, a lot for a, a film that I believe it was released in September or October. So it... Definitely had the promise of, of being a school holiday kind of film if it had the legs. And um, it, it clearly had this you know critical disconnect where it, it kind of was met with, ah, I don't really think this is for kids. And, and to be honest, it's uh, someone, yeah, who saw it as a kid, didn't really fully understand. It's like little things, like things that now I laugh at and find funny, but then right. and then find the heavier scenes I understand more. It's It's... Honestly, it's sort of like, and obviously it's a weird comparison, but it kind of is is, is apt. It's it's like you know we we joke about it, but we you know take ants for example, mm. a kids film that uses way too many very obscure like Woody Allen's the main character, and it's like what six year old is going to appreciate Woody Allen's? I think that that's it. That's the um, key is, is yeah, like Toy Story. It sort of sells within its own. Yeah. sort of image but Fantastic Mr. Fox a lot of people are excited for this because oh it's a Wes Anderson film it's sort of from an auteur director this is the cast you know George Clooney and Meryl Streep and you know Bill Murray and all these people mm. that are you know a lot of them are staples of Wes Anderson's career I think this film in terms of the intriguing side of it appealed to people who are already fans of his work no not children no 100% <laughs> like I mean, and I find that that's the that's where it's it, that's why I would say it was, yeah, you, you either have to be a fan, and I think to really be a fan of his work, you have to be, you know, adolescent at the minimum and then upwards of, of adulthood because, like, uh, adults can sit back and enjoy this film. It's like some things, like, although the animation is, is pretty in itself, it's not, when I say pretty, I'm saying it's, it you know, it's really nice colour palette and warm and stuff, but that's very Wes Anderson. Like, if you look at, the, like some of the character models, particularly the human character models, they are anything but pretty. They're, right. they're obviously <laughs> deliberately uglied up, um, and they're not something comforting for a, for a uh, uh, a child to look at for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, and, a lot of the beauty in this film comes from like the scenery, mm, and, uh, and that's very similar in Isle of Dogs. It's a similar mm. thing that happened in that film where um, a lot of the adult characters are actually quite. Um, uh, they're not the they're not what's part of the the prettier side of of humanity in that humanity's representation in that film. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I think especially in Isle of Dogs, the themes are just 
so much darker. <laughs> very dark. Than, than your typical animated people, children's people film. People die. And I think I think that's where this... I don't want to call it a disconnect comes from, but yeah, we're not used to auteur filmmakers making what are seemingly cartoon children's movies. And I think mm. part of that comes from, obviously, this is based on a Roald Dahl book, which is very much geared towards children and told that simplistic way. It's been a while since I've read it, of course. But I think, and I should clarify at the top that I think this is my favorite Wes Anderson film by a long shot, not necessarily. I think I think his two animated films are easily the, his best works. That's, that's sort of what I see because I think they blend so well. But yeah, I just think it's something that we're not used to seeing even today still. Like... Mm. You got is it Walking Life? Is that what it's called? That's sort of an author piece. Um, as far as I know, it's sort of more of an anthology collection of short stories. Um, I know that uh, Charlie Kaufman did an animated film that I still haven't seen a few years ago. Well, as they, I brought up James and the Giant Peach, of well, yeah, um, yeah. which was done by Henry Selick. Um, and I remember seeing that film, and I, I was really young when I saw that film, like six or seven, and was uncomfortable. I find this animation style. Um, particularly the stuff from like Selick or, or Tim Burton's way of doing the stop oh, motion. Tim Burton nails this as well, but it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm. Like I watched Corpse Bride when I was too young, right? Like, and I probably wasn't even that young, but it was just very uncomfortable film because of obviously the Burton esque way of, of yeah. covering kind of grimace subject matter. But I wouldn't say Corpse Bride was a children's film. No, exactly. And like I love Frank and Weenie. I thought it was mm. excellent, but it's a black and white film. Mm. <laughs> it's completely gory and in black and white. And if anything, I think this this style is kind of strange because I think it might have evolved to be a style that's not shouldn't be associated with children. Um, mm. And um, because and maybe once upon a time it was, but nowadays it's like if I think of any contemporary twentieth or twenty first century examples, like late twentieth century, early twentieth. None of them I'm like, I would want to show to anyone under the age of like 11 or 12. Okay. But see, that that's where it comes from. It's like, it doesn't need to be. No. And that's probably where, you know, the box office sort of, I don't want to call it a failure, but maybe disappointment, if you will. That's where that comes from, I'm sure, because people can't quite tell whether it's a children's film or not, whether they should take their kids out. I mean, I, I never got taken. It's interesting that people film. think Roald Dahl's like a ch- pure children's author. But he is, though. I guess. It seems all his adaptations are quite dark, aren't they? I mean, well, I think that's sort of the beauty of it. And then, yeah, filmmakers like to delve into the darker themes yeah. more. Like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, that's still a children's film, even though it has some really terrifying scenes in it. Which, I mean, I look, I hate the the 2004 one or 2005 oh, the remake, one. Yeah. The remake. I mean, I'm a big fan of the original. But, yeah, definitely some... Uh, <laughs> some stuff in there that's quite quite dark to think about. The whole idea is kind of dark in itself. Yeah, yeah. But I get I get what you're saying. I, I do get what you're saying. I I think what I like about this film is is it rewards an older viewer, much like Isle of Dogs does. Um and it's uh, it's one it's the fact it's so timely the one the best thing about this style is how mm. timeless it'll be. Yeah. And I think that's what is most about this is twelve years on and it hasn't aged today. It doesn't look dated. Yes, yeah. and it never will be. That's the best part. No, and it's like we did Pinocchio, what like ten, twenty weeks ago now. Not terribly long ago, but one of my huge takeaways from that film is the exact same takeaway I have from this film, which is the amount of 
clear effort and passion that was put into the project where every frame you could tell they're doing something like oh this will be really hard to do let's do it let's try and impress the audience i wrote a entire bucket list of just shots and and animations that they did that i was like that would have been really really hard to do yeah in the stop motion side because it was just constant every five seconds i'm like that's impressive that's impressive that's really cool that's intriguing that's beautiful and the amount of energy that i mean i know wes anderson you know he's the guy you know pulling the strings all right you do this you do that but the amount of effort it takes to make a stop motion film is is mind-bogglingly patient and obviously this was his first array i i still love wild dogs i think it's excellent but I think the amount of effort this film goes to impress you with the animations, and I even just rattle off a few of the examples if you can think of um, some of the other ones. Oh, here we go. Here's my bucket list. So, like, for example, just having a character in a rocking chair. Just, you can have him sitting in a chair and, like, blink. He's like, no, 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 let's get this rocking chair and get the animation of the rock correct for this entire scene. For no Mm. other reason than just it will add intrigue and some movement and energy to the scene. Um, I love the characters who get the the incapacitated characters who get crosses in the eyes, which that's a really impressive impressive thing, but it's just kind of funny and cute to see. Even the swirly eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but that's exactly it. And mm. like mixing those different types of animations. The scene when it's it's him and Felicity Fox, they're having like their big heart moment in the sewer, and they've got the water reflection, like the wavy effect mm-hmm. on the walls, while animating the characters moving and talking. Like, how the hell did they do that? It's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> it's mind-blowing. When you actually sit there and think, how do they animate this frame by frame? The the scene with the um, guitarist, which I think I've actually got his name here. Uh, oh, Petey. Petey, when he's playing the guitar, doing the song. Like, even just the way the strings move, like, that wouldn't have been that hard. But to animate it in a way where, like, the clay of the string stays straight, even though it's being bent up and down by mm. his playing. Like, just little details like that. It's like, that would... That would be a nightmare to do. And every single scene is constantly creating these really impressive scenarios. Um, but then even the odes to other you know, more simplistic modes of animation. I love the shot. It's towards the end when we're looking through the bottom uh, glass view of the helicopter where you, you see the pilot's feet and then sort of the flat scenery below. That's just like an aesthetically gorgeous shot. Mm. Um, so I love the, the film, the pendulum swing of just how many different... Um, impressive bits of animation are sprinkled throughout this film. I love the effort. <laughs> um, I want to give a shout out to Eric Chance Anderson or Chase. I wrote Chance. I don't know why. Eric Chase Anderson. Who is that? Is that a brother or what's the deal there? Be interesting to explore, wouldn't it? Let's find it's out. Good. I just clicked on Wes Anderson's name. That's Ron Anderson, sir. There's no details on there. Yeah, it kind of looks like. Well, he's he's in every single other. Well, from Moonrise Kingdom, Royal Tenenbaums, Life Aquatic, Rushmore. Um, so he's sort of made his way around. But I want to give him a shout-out. His performance as Christofferson, which is a great name, is brilliant. <laughs> just sort of like his flat delivery. Mm. Um, but even just like... Soft delivery. Well, yeah, yeah. But even... Like, for example, when he's, when he's doing the science experiment... Um, with I can't remember what the animal is, but you know, like the bully character. Uh, he is Wes Anderson's brother. Oh, there you go, beautiful. Um, 
gonna gotta love him casting his brother and everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's like you always talked about. It's like the tight knit family a director builds with the people they want. Well, to I mean, with. big. I think one of the, the it's like everything about this. You know, we were talking about Tarantino and and um, uh, Wright's connection last week. This was co written by uh, mm. Noah Bombock and yeah, it was. And, <laughs> that's crazy but you know it's sort of like you can kind of see it the mumblecore man himself getting in a film where some of probably anderson's quickest dialogues probably in this film like there's definitely more like back mm. and forths i wonder how many pages the script was because it was not 80 pages <laughs> there was no way it was 80 pages mm. the amount of back and forth dialogue but i do find that interesting because it's sort of it's actually an interesting relationship to Mumblecore because, I mean, it's in in the title, Mumble, mm. the idea of dialogue that's sort of spontaneous and, and almost non-chronological, that it feels natural. How cool we would it talk. be if you had, like, a Gerwig, Bombok, and Anderson, like... Oh, like a big collaboration? Even just Gerwig being in one. Right. In an Anderson film would be fun. That wouldn't surprise me. She strikes me as someone who could... I mean, she might have... Uh, she's not in this film in particular, but she might have stuck in one. Maybe his next animated film. Oh, that'd be you so know. cool. But no, it's like I was saying with the, the the juxtaposition of Mumblecore, where it's like, well, a lot of that is dialogue that... There has to be a certain skill to the actual... The writing of the dialogue for it to work, even in Mumblecore. Even if the idea is for it to not really make much sense, but it, it still needs sort of a direction. And I think it works here, where it's just fast-laced. True. But that's the other reason why this is not a kid's film. Because for kids, that... It's too witty. It's too quick. <laughs> like, the back and forth. Like, we were making the cussing joke before, but it's like that whole scene mm. is just... It's hilarious, you but me? you don't yeah. really understand why it's hilarious because of how quick the dialogue is yeah. in that back and forth. Well, part of what makes that scene funny, and this is something that's constantly done throughout the film, is... The juxtaposition between, yeah, this witty, very adult, not adult is in like mature, but adult is in, you know, they're very serious conversations about, you know, buying land property and things like that. Or mm. the, the mortality of oneself where he's like, you know, my father only lived another six fox months after myself before immediately being followed by growling and, and grueling and like ravishing through food like a wild animal. And I love that comparison of you have the wild animal. It's very Bojack-esque where it's almost like a disalarming intelligence before, like, a joke comes mm. through. And it's, it's not Baffo's... It is Baffo's in the sense of him having this, like, existential crisis before like, making the audience laugh. Um, but it works because it's in that animated setting where it's it's leaning on his animalistic nature. And the whole film is about, you know, identity and about, you know, understanding and embracing one's role in a family... And that really shows off at the end when he's assigning everyone roles based on their skills to you know for the heist to get Christopherson back. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's what the whole film is, and I love that they keep leaning into the animalistic side of like just embrace it, embrace the crazy. What's about embracing? Uh, yeah, and it's that whole point of our identity. It's about like the fact that they, the whole that's all that that's what they are. The animals. They're not. Yeah. This, they're not because it's kind of like a, in a weird way. It's sort of like a counterintuitive reading to like George Orwell's Animal Farm. <laughs> you can make the comparison. Oh, you could because yeah. I mean, the, if you take the ending of Animal Farm and compare it to the start of Fantastic Mr. Fox, it's sort of the reverse osmosis of it, you know, mm. um, where you know you're taking a bunch of characters that need to actually embrace their animalistic roots in rejection to their uh, human overlords <laughs> rather yeah, than yeah. 
those pigs getting all dressed up in their suits. <laughs> um, but there is there is that sort of line crossed because obviously it's a war between the animals and the humans. But what's interesting is that the humans won't go underground. You have mm-hmm. the foxes and and you know the weasels and all, all of these different animals that are able to adapt to an underground life where they have to go you know weeks without food or anything like that. Um, they're adaptable, and the humans are shown as not adaptable because their answer is to just blow the ground up. <laughs> mm. I gotta speak to the absolute absurdity of the lengths that the humans go through to kill this fox. It is brilliant. Can we, can we just um, <laughs> give a big shout out? Because he kind of steals the show. Voice of Franklin Bean, Michael Gambon, i.e. <laughs> Dumbledore. He's so good. <laughs> um, He's so good in this. Is just got one of the, f- still I think the funniest Wes Anderson scene out of any of his films. Okay. When he figure he can't, when he finds out and he just trashes the room. <laughs> And it's just Leonardo one DiCaprio. <laughs> it's just one take, and it's just it's pure hilarity. And it's like yeah. it's funny because now they always talk about the Isle of Dogs, the food preparation scene taking like seven months to do. Oh right! And it's yeah. like then I watch that scene every time, and I'm like, see, that's how you stop motion to yeah, your like yeah. to your full effect. Oh, it's that's an, yeah, it's another great example. Just wonderful animation. Um, yeah, that scene's hilarious. From uh, like from that to wearing the the fo- you know, Mr. Fantastic Mr. Fox's tail as a tie. <laughs> <laughs> it's just pure hilarious, like yeah. hilariousness. Well, they, those and they're basically all well, three yeah. of them are basically just the Mad Max Fury Road villains, aren't they? Really, <laughs> <laughs> three different. Um, it is. It is comparable to Chicken Run. Actually, we're just talking about that. Really is, uh, especially like the the dynamic between Bean and like his wife, who's yeah, played yeah. by like the late Helen um, McCory. Helen McCory. Um, and her voice was always so. Yeah, it's I love um. Well, voice. I love even just the way they're introduced by um. It's Bill Murray's character, isn't he? Because that, so that's where it comes from. That motivation of wanting to get a place that he can't necessarily afford. That's next to these farmers who would go out of their way to kill him. But just like this, this needing in the in, the ego. Yeah, well, it's, it's the need to get out there and like do this thing that gives him this adrenaline yeah. all over again. Um, to give him life, and I and I love that. But then the intros. Of the three different farmers is brilliant. See, that's when I read fifty six thousand shots. I was looking at scenes like that. I was like, oh, maybe it is. But you are, you are right. Yeah. It is that is divisible of eleven, which is very close to twelve, which is twelve frames a second. So, yeah, you kind of caught me out. Mm. <laughs> the very quick end math. There. That is very true. Uh, but no, I do, I do love that. And again, just the energy of of how things are moving because this is, you know, it's an eighty five minute film. It is. Yeah. Very sharp. I didn't realize this. Apparently, the second half is entirely original story. Like, pretty much the book ends during the initial toast, which is basically the midpoint of this film, mm. is when the kids go off to do their own thing. They essentially screw everything up again, where they get washed away on all the cider. Everything from that point on is all uh, was Anderson, Noah Bumbach, which is fascinating. Which is good, because then it shows sort of the... The important part that this is based it is not just a, a retelling of the book. And um, if you think about it, the second half is definitely where the heavier stuff happens. There's definitely a lot of yeah. We have the, the rat. The rat dies. Yeah. In that one, you have like the full-on war with the Molotov p- 
pinecone battle. <laughs> Which I that love. Standoff is just so funny. Well, that's what, what's great about the scene is it turns from a western to a fun war film within thirty seconds because you got the music obviously with the little the um, tumbleweed of newspaper mm-hmm. going around. And then, yeah, within seconds, you get, like, that sort of fun German music you'd hear in Jojo Rabbit <laughs> as the war begins. So funny. It, it, it's definitely... It's a such a fun film to watch. It's... What I think this film accomplishes, which is one of its... Um, which is actually probably a compliment of him, is, is his choices... When especially as he moved through his career, he you know we always talk about like yeah he does have his regular fixtures, but I do think he really does, and it's commented on his meticulous nature of casting. But his casting is perfect for this film, mm-hmm. from protagonist to antagonist. The fact that the funny thing is, I was like, oh, I, this I think this is the only Clooney inclusion, but it's also out of all of his films, the only time I'd probably cast Clooney too. Yeah, I don't no, think he's he, Ocean Eleven stick. Yeah, stick, it, it's totally appropriate. And and not just that, but almost at the time, and even now, he's seen as this charisma machine. Mm. Like, this American charisma machine. Not a Bond-esque charisma, just like a the gentleman-esque, the gentleman swindler. Yeah. It's kind of his demeanor. And, yeah, obviously, the casting plays perfectly into that. It's interesting. What I actually find this really interesting is... Although I like Meryl Streep's casting in this, I don't know if she's necessary in this film. Well, as, um, as like a mother, as part of the family. Yeah. I mean, I guess at the time she was, you know, she was in Mamma Mia and stuff like that too. So. Yeah, well, Meryl Streep's Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep can go in anything, <laughs> but it's like, but it's sort of like she has the. I actually think she has the Achilles heel problem that like things like, even like Tom Hanks and stuff have like that they almost get cast in things just because of like their Meryl Streep or their Tom Hanks and right. sometimes it can be like were they the best choice for that role and so this is a more of a problem with Tom Hanks sometimes he really isn't the right choice for it and he gets picked for it I'm like I feel like you're just picking it for the name but I definitely think that it's interesting when you look at they would have been the names at the time that marketed going to see this film right but I wouldn't even think they're names that would, once again, it just reinforces this isn't a kid's film. Because no kid's going to be like, oh my God, I want to go see that film with Meryl Streep in it. Like, <laughs> or George Clooney. Like, that's definitely for the parents, yeah. for sure. I mean, we've we've talked about that whole journey through animated films and using, you know, fame all the way back to Aladdin and the whole, yeah. everything that happened from that point on. But, like, even look at Toy Story. It's like, yeah, they didn't promote Tim, Ad- Tim Allen and, and, and Tom Hanks, but... There were still like prominent parts in the marketing for the parents that were like, oh, I have to take my kids to this film. Oh, it's got mm. these actors in it. They might have been thinking the same thing. But again, I feel like Wes Anderson never made this film for children. Yeah, He clearly didn't. I don't think so. Because he put way too much effort and passion into making it a Wes Anderson film, which typically aren't children's films. Yeah. Um, I, I, I liked her a lot in the role. I was always thrown up by that. Oh, yeah, that is Meryl Streep, isn't it? But I can hear it in her voice. Yeah. The line that kills me, I'm, I feel like I might butcher it, but even though, you know, if what I think is happening is happening, it better not be. That is a brilliant line. <laughs> even just like the cut-ins that are I'm just surprised. Like, I'm surprised like a Tilda Swinton doesn't just get put I, into it. I believe, um, I think I think the rumor mill was pretty strong, but apparently Kate um, 
Blanchett was maybe going to play I that role see, instead. And I could actually... And they will work together, obviously, in Steve Zizou. Yeah, and I probably could have seen that casting way more, I think. Like, I okay. think... I don't, well, she doesn't detract from the role by any by any stretch. It's just interesting, the, the choice, I think, for me. Um, because every other case has been... But it's it's interesting how he chooses them and how, because obviously you know he's been told that and he's had problems with with performances in the part. I know he had a real big problem with Gene Hackman because of how he wants things performed a certain way. Yeah, of course. Someone like, and Hackman didn't like that. It was a real co- like um, clash. Whereas like you know we see Murray being I think literally Murray's in next to all of them. Mm in one way, whether it's a cameo or, 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 and he is distinct in every role, but then still, still Bill Murray. So it's interesting. Well, that yeah, that's it. He definitely has like the Bill Murray isms yeah. in all of them. Sort of that slow, funny, you know, it kind of reminds me a bit of, um, God, who am, how am I forgetting his name? I just watched a special of his a few weeks ago, but just like his delivery is so specific mm. that it always lands. And, I'm not going to see him be like, he has, his characters are completely different between every Wes Anderson film, but it's like, he serves the purpose that he needs to in each one of them, which yeah. I think is excellent. I love me some Clooney. Never can never go wrong. His voice is like velvet. <laughs> but it's like the comparison you made to, it's like, he isn't Bond. Bond is a little more suave and slow and, and calculating, and George Clooney is, is always hyper. Like, he's excited and, and articulate well, and sounds like he you know, knows exactly what he's doing, but he's really hyper, we, and that fits this character Perfectly. Yeah, if we jump back to our Ocean's Eleven review, he's the one that talks. Brad Pitt's the stoic, quiet one. Right. Like, there's that, that scene in the bar when they've got 10, and he's like, you think we need 11? And Brad Pitt doesn't say anything. And he's like, okay, we'll get 11. <laughs> like, it's just all Clooney talking through that scene. Yeah. And, you know, it's like even the way Ocean's Eleven starts with, like, Danny being the one who's, like, telling the story, it's like... It plays into his ego. Danny Ocean likes telling the stories. Yeah, yeah. No, he's perfectly cast. It's like you said. It's like he's not really a staple of Wes Anderson, but it is perfect casting regardless. Yeah, well, I, like I said, I don't think um, I could think of another one. Yeah, I um, think Bill Murray could play Fantastic Mr. Fox. <laughs> but it's like even with, you know, Cranston, That's that wasn't that his first Anderson, Isle of Dogs? Yeah, that would have been. So it's like... And I, to my, I haven't obviously looked at the the casting for Friends Dispatch, but to be honest, it looks a lot like ones who were regular fishes. You know, the Francis Mc. There's a ton. Francis McDormand, um, you know, Sasha Ronan. Benicia del Toro. Timothy like, Chalamet is back in it. Um, but, oh, dude, the cast is ridiculous. Yeah. For the French Dispatch. But I think the top billings went to Murray and, and del Toro. On Letterboxd, my, which my makes me thinking think, is Bill Murray has a pretty big role in that one. I I'm think, not, I obviously don't know, but I think Benicia del Toro also has a pretty big role, so it'll be interesting. Um, yeah, you also got Edward Norton, of course. I think Christoph Waltz is that a first? I can't think that might be a first. Um, Willem Dafoe, he's actually been in quite a few of his films. Now. Oh, he's in this one, he's the uh, rat, he is in this one, yeah. Oh, he's so good in the rat. That's one of the only times I was like, man, Willem Dafoe's Defoe, like Does Dafoe really die nice... the most in Wes Anderson films? Did he die in Steve Zizou? No, he dies in Grand Budapest. Just oh, okay. flying off. <laughs> 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 Who dies the most in Wes Anderson films? Uh, good point. But then, yeah. Um, yeah, and of course, Tilda Swinton. Adrian Brody, is that a first? 
French Dispatch. No, no, he's in Grand Budapest. And in, oh, you're right, of course. And, he's in and Grand Darlene. Budapest. Okay. He is yeah. also a regular fixture of Wednesday. There James. you go. Oh, and of course, Owen Wilson. Jeffrey Wright, is that you? Yeah. Yeah, look at that's, that. That's he's he's not in any others. That's exciting. There you go. So, he, I mean, he, that cast in French Dispatch is absolutely bonkers. Dude, Jeffrey Wright's getting so much love recently. I love it. <laughs> he's getting a lot of work. Love it. about time (laughs) I remember a couple months ago I watched Ali and he's just like one of the background people and then I watched Uh, um, I'm pretty sure he's in um, one of those Denzel Washington films and once again he's just like the background I'm like man you wait buddy two more decades of working the grindstone you'll get your moment yeah yeah Um, Uh, good stuff no I I, I, do you have anything else you'd like to add before moving in the home the only thing I want to mention really quick is um, sort of the the father son relationship he has with Ash of course Um, the fact that he's different I like that they do sort of that little facial not facial but like that that hand motion before Mm -hmm. saying different um, which I think is kind of like a nice nifty way to do it even though the um you know, Christopherson is different in his own way. He wears like different clothes. And obviously, there's different delivery, line delivery, and all of that. I thought you were my partner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you betrayed me or whatever he says. Yeah, um, I yeah, I love him. So he's also got great delivery. But I I specifically love the relationship they have, where that is such a natural thing for a father who is in a state of of longing a different kind of life and mm-hmm. wanting to try different things to to be more attracted to you know the off cousin. As opposed to the sun, um, I, I like that arc really well. Like, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty uh, played safe. For the the you know, they don't do anything too interesting with it, but I think it works really well within the confines of this film. Yeah, yeah it's really nice. But that's that's for the most part. I think that's what Wes Anderson does. Is he definitely simplifies relationships down to their um, bare bones, and then the the nuances are what give intricacy and quirks to the understanding of that family dynamic. But yeah. Um, that pretty much leads me into my highlight scene. Oh, um, the uh, dialogue exchange that happens between Ash and Fantastic nice. Mr. Fox, uh, Mr. Fox, um, about um, Re- recalling when he found out he was his wife was giving him birth. Yeah, and yeah. it's like the little quirks in that scene, like the fact that they didn't know he was a guy or a girl, and Ash interjects. Like, yeah, yeah. I've always loved those subtle little like because that's it's. Yeah, very Anderson, the the direct bluntness, but it's also kind That's of... That's the Noah Baumbach-esque-ness of it. Yeah. The gender correction, yeah. It's like, you, I, I could have been either. And it's like, yeah, you could have been. But I'm really glad you're, you know... You're, the, yeah, like, you're my And son, it's like yeah. a really, really good moment. Um, And yeah, so i definitely a big fan of that one. Yeah. Well, my highlight scene, I kind of didn't know where to go with this until five seconds ago. I was like, oh, that's a great one. It's also a quieter, nuanced moment is when... I guess it's the first night that Christopherson's staying over. And he like he you know he has to stay in the little thing under the train table oh, that he's, he's got going. He's crying, table. yeah. It's but just like a nice, subtle, quiet moment. With probably one of the only moments in the entire film with no like rush of dialogue is when he turns the when Ash turns the train on, and they both just sort of sit there, and their heads are almost in sync, following the train move. Yeah. That's such a nice, beautiful it's an olive branch. Yeah, because yeah. Ash acts out, says, "I've had it up to here with you." Yeah, um, Christopherson feels really isolated. Um, and Ash is the one who extends the, which we really show because at that point, I think Ash's character is kind of seen as this sort of whiny teenage, um, who's just not getting attention. And right. Yeah. When in fact it's like both, are adolescent teens struggling with identity. 
Yeah, and and being ignored and feeling different and and just not welcomed. So, mm. no, it's a beautiful scene. The only the other quote I'll mention, my quote of the film: "You wrote a bad song, Petey." <laughs> or the bean, the bean trashing the room. The bean, scene. yeah, still will make you laugh oh, at any point. That's classic. You're having a bad day. At least you're not, having, at least you're not doing what Bean did in that yeah, scene. Yeah. <laughs> No worries. Well, Fantastic Mr. Fox is currently out on Netflix, I believe. Yeah, it's on Netflix. You can rent or buy it on Amazon Prime. And I I always forget this. This film's in the Criterion Collection. Have you seen how cool the Criterion Collection one looks? I've got I to gotta open it. I haven't seen it in it a is, while. I want it. So bad. Fantastic Mr. Fox Criterion Collection. As, as someone who was... Ooh, look at that. It is Oh, gorgeous. that's beautiful. Look at that. He's given the toast... Oh, that's a gorgeous art cover. Yeah, I gotta get this. <laughs> Not too expensive too, thirty eight dollars. Oh yeah, that works. Free shipping before December ninth. Jesus Christ. Oh, I guess it's what two weeks away. Yeah. I guess it's not terrible. Yeah. It's coming up on us. That's Speaking of what's one. coming up on us, Jake, what's new mm. to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? Oh, it's it's a little induendo right there. Induendo, I love it, dude. I've got a squeaky chair today. It's really <laughs> squeaking on me. I'm literally, I actually am replacing that chair. I was just telling you that I got it off the the Verge collection, stealing chairs and, time of the year. from peasants. Uh, coming to Netflix this week, we got Tick Tick Boom, which I mentioned I think last week or the week before, which is the Andrew Garfield uh, musical, which is exciting. Uh, and this is where I mentioned we're going to uh, talk about some series, some series, if you will. Uh, which includes a season of Hellbound, the live-action adaptation mm-hmm. of Cowboy Bebop, which I'm sure someone cares about. <laughs> I'm sure some anime people care about that. And most interestingly, Tiger King 2, which I guess what? continues the story of Tiger well, like King. Like it's a series? It's like five episodes. It's like a new series of it. But what's going to happen? I think it's like him in jail still, but like I think there's more like trials. I have no idea. I generally don't. You know, it, it's gonna. It's totally gonna have. Um, here's, here's the thing. Right now, I'm gonna throw it to you, Jake. You're gonna throw it at me. Will it beat? Net, uh, will it beat Squid Game on most of you? No, it won't. I mean, no, the fact that you didn't realize this existed. Not enough people know this is coming. Okay. I'm sure it will like kind of half blow up when it's actually out. I mean, no one knew about Squid Game until it showed up on the TV screens. But sure. Um, I think I think the, it came at a perfect time, perfect storm of right in peak COVID, like the second we went into lockdown, this show came out. And um, I just think the, the the hype for it is sort of dwindled. Okay. So, I I, I mean, I'll watch it, but I'm not like, oh my God, I need to see this, you know? Oh my God. Yeah, I seem to recall, I think, if, well, I know we talked about it on the show, I think the first four or five episodes were quite good. It was a seven or eight episode Oh, I series. liked the whole thing. Mm. I was a big fan, I think, of the first, I think it's when it starts to go to the... I want to say the election episode. That's <laughs> I when love really the election. St- <laughs> <laughs> it's a crazy man. Uh, coming to Stan, actually, today is a pretty big drop. Just today, you've got The Professor and the Madman, Stronger, which I think is Jake Gyllenhaal film, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, uh, National Lampoon's Vacation, uh, and Seven. Big drop. And then coming tomorrow is the Best Picture winner, The Artist. There you go. Uh, which was sort of people's counter comment to Parasite in terms of foreign films winning Best Picture. I was like, well, that won it too. It's like, yeah, but that's a silent film. doesn't count. <laughs> Which I actually haven't seen, so I might watch it now that it's coming to stand this week. Uh, coming to Disney Plus is The Night House, which is the Rebecca Hall horror film. I think it came out earlier this year. 
Uh, coming to Prime, the Truffle Hunters. You've seen this, Zeke. I did. I went until this. A while ago. April <laughs> this year. Okay. It was good. It was very specific. It's good. A yeah. uh, couple of Truffle films this year between this and Pig. Yeah, exactly. Double feature. <laughs> uh, coming to Binge this week, you have Elf, Where the Millers, and The Hangover, parts one and three for some reason. I guess, I mean, no one likes part two anyway, I guess. <laughs> and coming to cinemas this week, as I mentioned earlier, Zola gets its wide release. Yeah. Last Night in Soho gets its last release. We talked about that last week. So. A wide release? Yeah, like proper. Okay. You can, yeah. You can still... Actually, no, I think now you have to wait till Thursday. Sure. But then it gets a proper release. Um, so we caught it quite early. Uh, also, Blue Bayou, which is loosely based on true stories, I believe. It's a Korean-American raised in the uh, Louisiana Bayou. Uh, yeah, by you. Yeah, it's by you. Yeah. Working hard to make a life for his family, but that is all at risk when he learns that he could be deported from the only country he has ever known. Could be good. Yeah. yeah sounds intriguing. Uh, the Rescue is a documentary from the team that brought you Free Solo, which I think was nominated for Best Documentary. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed Free Solo. Oh, nice. There you go. Well, now- oh, wait, no, I haven't seen Free Solo. I watched no? Dawn Wall. Sorry. Oh, okay. They, they yeah. came out at the same time. Right. They were about <laughs> climbing Yosemite. <laughs> so annoying. They messed with your brain. Well, if you guys liked Free Solo more than the other one, then now they're putting their attention on the youth soccer team Rescue in the Northern Thailand Cave, which was a few years ago now. Um, I, that was the one Elon Musk bloody mm. got him out. Which, I'm always curious, because I know they did a drama of this earlier in the year. I wonder what like the Elon Musk of it all is. In both these Who would play films. Elon Musk? Who <laughs> would play Elon Musk? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Ah, uh, goodness. But that's it. That's coming to streaming in cinemas this week, Zeke. In the dramas. Well, Jake, it's been nine episodes. Mm. So it's time for us to move. Has it been nine years? Uh, it's, oh. it's felt like nine years, actually, to be <laughs> honest, since the first one. But it is time, Jake. We're not watching any of those next week on the show. But what are we watching? Next week in the show, Zeke, we're watching Before... Sunset. All right. Hey, think of it like this. Um, uh, jump ahead 10, 20 years, and you're married. And only your marriage doesn't have that same energy that it used to have. You start to think about all those guys you've met in your life and what might have happened if you picked up with one of them. Let me get my back. Nine years ago, two strangers met by chance and spent a night in Vienna that ended before sunrise. They are about to meet for the first time since. Hi. Hello. It's been nine episodes. <coughs> years, sorry, excuse me, Zeke. Since Jesse and Celine's initial meeting, it's time to check in on them. Now, Zeke, I spared you the logline. Good. I want you to know nothing. Nothing at all. I have successfully known nothing. You know, the funniest thing is sure. I had to order I ordered a double of yep. four. So I don't actually have midnight yet. Right. Um, and I'll just buy Midnight After because Midnight's the easiest one to get. It's the first two that you struggle to find. Right, okay. Because um, you can get Midnight on Blu-ray, I'm pretty sure. Oh, um, interesting. So, like separately. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so I had to order the first two and this double on eBay. It was very cheap. Guy like did it for like five bucks and yeah. it was like free postage. So it was like really cool. Ever since I got that though, I have now seen both of these films like everywhere in op shops didn't see wow. at op shops okay it's haunting you um <laughs> until i bought it and then like the other day i was in an op shop in willerton and i saw both of them didn't see midnight i was like man now i need midnight no, were, they, need were they less than five bucks though yeah like two. Oh my god uh, <laughs> one dollar each funny. movie but um 
Yeah, so I guess you want me to pitch what happens. Yeah, so we we have a great opportunity. I should have really done this at the end of the Before Sunrise um, episode. Yeah. But it's all right. We've got an opportunity. We could do it right now. Mm. And at the end of next week, I might ask you the same question for, for midnight. But, Zeke, it's been nine years since their initial meeting. Where do you think... Well, what do you think happens in this film? Where do you think their relationship is? Um, My first... My initial thing was I think that following the ending of the film, obviously we talked about it, on that uh, that episode, that they promised to see each other in a year. Yeah. Um, and I don't think they fulfill that promise. Okay. Um, I believe that one thing will lead to another, and they will decide to meet nine years after the fact. Um, whether that will be, I'm going to say it's career related that they run into. I don't even know if they're in Vienna, so uh, a different European city. I will say it's not Vienna. It's they, somewhere else. Okay, cool. I'm glad. I th- didn't think it would be. So I'm thinking it's going to be um, somewhere other romantic, maybe Venice or something like that, um, and they're going to meet each other in this place and then choose to do the exact same thing. And it will be an introspective of their last almost decade away from each other. Mm. Um, that's my prediction. I like it. I like it a lot. Of course, I know how I've seen the whole trilogy, but um, I think I think that's a really... Uh, I like it. That's all I'm going to mm. say. I really like that. It's totally not based off any other thing that might be happening off the show. Ah! But... That's a, that's a different story for a different time. Right, okay. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Before Sunset. The sun is setting down. Here goes the sun. Da, 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 da.